Alright, hello everybody. Today is Monday, another Zodiac Monday. Welcome to the show. How's everybody doing? I hope everyone had a good weekend. And just a couple of quick announcements before we begin. As a reminder, this show is always available for free download at Launchpad 1. There's a link to that in the description box. You can download the audio version, take it on the go, anywhere and anyhow. That's the pure podcast, just the audio. If you would like to download the video version, you can use YouTube Premium. That one you have to pay for, though, but it does give you the images. Launchpad 1 is free. And another reminder is that if you would like to support any of these efforts or any of the channels that this show is affiliated with, you can go over to buymeacoffee.com slash blackboxnet88. There's also a link to that in the description box. And if you'd like to make a contribution, anything is welcome. And all supporters will get a shout-out on Zodiac Mondays. So, to begin with today's episode, first I have to give a shout-out to Professor Japanese007, who sent in a new suspect to me. And this suspect was proposed by the YouTube channel AZ Unsolved. And today I will be talking about Dr. Derek J. Price. He was a British physicist who then relocated to America who was involved with a discipline known as the History of Science, which um, does some type of interdepartmental workings, if you will. And their video, which they have released, is called Possible Solve to the Zodiac Killer Z13 Cipher. The Zodiac was a serial killer that operated in 1968 and 69, maybe additional pre-Zodiac crimes, maybe the murders continued after that, but that's anybody's guess. Lots of theories out there. The Zodiac is also very famous for mailing in the codes, or the ciphers, and the four confirmed ciphers that the authorities believe came from the killer are the Z408, the Z340, the Z13, and the Z32. And I'll play a clip from that channel in just a second, but first, let's get a little bit of some background information on this guy, Dr. Derek J. Price. So his full name is Derek John DeSola Price. He was born on January 22nd of 1922, and he died on September 3rd of 1983. And as I said, he was born in England. So DeSola is actually his mother's maiden name, and Price was his father's name. So his full name is Derek John DeSola Price. And as I said, physicist, historian of science, information scientist, just pulling up some very basic Wikipedia information. Already, I'm sure some of you guys are thinking about age, education level, like, how does all that factor in? Because if there's a serial killer operating in 1968 and 69, and he's born in 1922, I'm going to do some fast math and say that he would have been about 46 or 47 years old. So that's um definitely pushing it in terms of... um the Zodiac Killer's age, but he actually passed away in 1983 because of a heart attack, <clears throat> and some people believe that the Zodiac Killer died rather um, shortly after the m- murders and the letter stopped, and that's the reason why there was this complete halt in Zodiac activity. Other people believe something quite to the contrary, that the Zodiac continued mailing in letters all the way through the 1980s, most notably the 1986 letter, the 1987 letter, the 1990 Eureka card, and the 2001 card. So, 
as I said, this is all unconfirmed into that territory. But what I was much more curious about was, how did this guy, as I said, very well-educated, double PhD, actually, and um, his one of his PhDs was even in history. And, I mean, not, I, mean I think well-educated is completely um, an understatement. I mean, he's working with universities all over the world, including the National University of Singapore, teaching applied mathematics. I mean, this guy is like one of the absolute most educated suspects out there. So, um, as, but in terms of his time in America, he more or less relocates to the United States in 1960. He works with the universities Princeton and Yale, and you can find these little snippets about him online saying that Yale would become his future home, or his place of permanent residence. And okay, I mean, I can accept that he was in the United States, but Yale and Princeton are on the East Coast, and the Zodiac Killer was operating on the West Coast. And as I said, like, I had never heard of this guy until um, the info was uh, shared with me by a professor Japanese. And I was just flipping through the info, and I saw that in 1965, he was giving a speech in London. So that just made me question, well, was he just like moving back and forth because of academic events? Or did he relocate to the United Kingdom for a while in the late 1960s? So should that give us room for doubt? And I'll just read this very basic piece of info here. In 1965, Price gave the first Science of Science Foundation lecture entitled The Science of Scientific Foundations of Science Policy given at the Royal Institution of London. Wow, that is a tongue twister. I know it's not trying to be, but it is. Science of Science Foundation lecture entitled The Science of Scientific Foundations of Science Policy. Whew, there must be a reason why those guys have to go to college for so long. Sheesh. But anyway, I was much more concerned, though, about his whereabouts. And I do think that it's quite odd to propose a suspect that might not have the strongest connections to California, but the reason why this channel, AZ Unsolved, has chosen to do a video about De Derek J. Price as a Zodiac Killer suspect is because of a possible solution to the Z13 cipher. The Z13 is also known as the My Name Is Cipher, and I'm going to play an audio slash video clip. The Launchpad 1 listeners are only going to hear the audio, but it's going to talk about how they do it, and their video is 4 minutes and 55 seconds long. I'm only going to play about 2 minutes of it, which is just under half of the video, but it's called Possible Solve to the Zodiac Killer Z13 Cipher. I hope you will go over to their channel at some point and watch the whole thing, but I hope it's okay with them that I'm doing this. It's just, I really think it needs to be presented in their words about how this solution to the cipher was created. Let's have a listen. We then counted up the characters in his name as written at the top of that paper. Dr. Derek J. Price, 13 characters. We performed a simple frequency analysis of the 13 character Zodiac Z13 cipher, which would allegedly reveal his identity. We found that one character occurs three times, three characters occur two times, and four characters occur one time. 
Dr. Derek J. Price contains two characters that occur three times, one character that occurs twice, and five characters that occur once. Not a fit. But we had one more thing to try. In the letter sent alongside the Z13 cipher to the media, there are five misspelled words. We took note of the edits required to fix each one. Cross out a few letters, add a few letters, perform a few letter-for-letter -letter substitutions. We use these edits as a set of rules to transform the letters of Dr. Derek J. Price. Once we applied these rules, there was one character that occurred three times, three characters that occurred two times, and four characters that occurred one time. A perfect match to the Z13 cipher character frequency. We only know the exact placement of the letter U, which is represented in the cipher by the circled 8 symbol. While we don't know the exact placement of the other letters, we had the advantage of already having a name to plug into the cipher. We will give those characters a semi-arbitrary placement for now to show the process as the potential Zodiac Killer imagined it being solved. First, let's remove an N. Then, substitute K for C and E's for all of the U's. Add an I, subtract an O, and add an R. Rearrange the letters to get Dr. Derek J. Price. So, if we did correctly solve the Z13 cipher, the spelling errors in the letter were essential to fully deciphering the code. This could explain the presence of spelling errors in the ciphers that have already been mostly cracked, and highlights the importance of the spelling mistakes in the Zodiac letters, which, ironically, were sent to newspaper editors. Do you think we solved the Z13 cipher? Is Price connected to the Zodiac killings? Was he framed by the real killer? Or are these findings just a strange, statistically improbable series of coincidences? Let us know what you think. Well, firstly, I do appreciate them taking the time to create this video, but there are some challenge questions that they asked at the end. Firstly, do you think that Price was framed by the real killer? I mean, I think that it's almost impossible to say that in any direction, yes or no, because we don't know who actually composed the Z13 cipher, and secondarily, we don't know if that solution is correct. How on earth would we be able to say that Price was framed? I mean, that solution is even presented just as a possibility, and they're asking us the challenge question, do, they, do I think they solved the Z13 cipher? No, because it has to tie in to the final challenge question. Is that all just some improbable coincidence? Absolutely not. That is not a coincidence at all. I mean, if you watch that video clip, you probably saw that they're blatantly fudging the facts. It's just cherry-picking to get a desired result. And I'm not trying to be mean or trying to be harsh or trying to be dismissive, but that's what they're doing. Okay, so we first tried it with four numbers, and that didn't work, so we needed a fifth. And now we thought of a way to do that. That just goes into the category of anybody can manipulate these type of solutions with the appropriate amount of cleverness. I mean, to demonstrate, my name is Ned Dahan, right? How many letters are in that? N-E-D, that's three, Dahan. D-E-H-A-N, that's five, so we have eight. Okay, so let's say, hmm, the Z13 cipher. Well, firstly, we can take away the uh, three circle dates. Those are just fillers. And then that brings us down to 10. 
Oh, but instead of Dr. Derek J. Price, let's say Mr. Ned DeHaan. Boom. Okay, there. We saw the Z13 cipher. It was Ned DeHaan the whole time. Must have been a uh, uh, some type of time machine thing going on. But the whole point is, you can mess around with the letters and the symbols and the numbers, as they're doing in that one, and you can get a desired result if you try hard enough and long enough. And that's what my ultimate conclusion. But if you think that my response is unjustified, or you think that there is something that is a little bit more substantial in their video, again, on the channel AZ Unsolved, I would love to hear your response in the comments section down below. Do you think that Derek J. Price is the solution to the Z13 cipher? Oh, I repeat, Dr. Derek J. Price. And I need to repeat one single point, and that is, I know that they got the name from the top of an academic paper that he had published, but I do have to say it one more time. His full name was Derek DeSola Price, Derek John DeSola Price, and he is referred to as that in numerous um, uh, publications, and if you just Google him, you'll see him perhaps even more frequently referred to as Derek DeSola Price. So he only went by the D D Dr. Derek J. Price some of the time, so if you're going to frame somebody for being the Zodiac Killer, put his name into the Z13, wouldn't you use Derek DeSola Price instead of Dr. Derek J. Price? I mean, I don't know. I suppose anything's possible, and I will give them that, but I also wanted to just share something that is um, just a little bit of extra info about Dr. Derek J. Price, and I had never heard of this thing before, but in his uh, scientific contribution section, he is listed as being the creator of Price's Law. Price's Law pertains to the relationship between the literature on a subject and the number of authors in the subject area stating that half of the publications come from the square root of all contributors. Thus, if 100 papers are written by 25 authors, 5 authors will have contributed 50 papers. So, do you follow all that? It sounds like the square root of the number of authors are writing half of the materials that are available, and I think it means that if there are 100 papers that are written by 9 people, then three of those people will have written 50 of the uh, papers or 50 of the pieces of writing. I mean, that's just, you know, continuing onward with the example. But I began to think, though, what would happen if you use the square root of a smaller number? Like, they use the um, example of 25, and I just said 9. But what about the number 4? Because what's the square root of 4? 2, right? I mean, almost... Anytime you would have that, you're going to divide that in half. It's like you're going to get the perfect half, two on this side and two on that side. So let's say we don't have 100 papers, something realistically, 10. Okay, 10 papers are written by four people, and the square root of four is two, right? That means half of the papers are written by two people, and the other half are written by the other two people. Or if you want to get a um, perhaps a rounder number, 16, and then you would say, the square root of 4 is 2. That means 4 papers are written by one person, 4 could be written by the second, 4 by the third, and 4 by the fourth. It's almost like if you have 4 people working together, it could be possible to divide things evenly. Because that's what I think this is all about, just to show that 
something happens where some people produce an enormous amount of work, and some people probably do not produce a lot. But if you had four people working on um, a set of uh, tasks, and this task it appears to be writing papers or creating works for publication, then if you have four people working on the task, the work could be, I repeat, could be divided evenly. Doesn't mean that it would have to work out perfectly every time. I just thought that was really interesting, Price's Law. And I'm definitely making a note of this, and maybe it'll come up in some type of future life event. But uh, thank you again to Professor Japanese for sharing the uh, video with me about Dr. Derek J. Price, British scientist, is the Zodiac Killer. Now to move on to the next segment, I finally got around to watching some of the videos from Drew Beeson that he had released on his channel, talking all about visiting the sites of Zodiac activity. Now, I believe Drew is based in Texas, but he had the opportunity to go out to California and visit the Zodiac Killer crime scenes, and the names of the videos on his channel are The Good Times I Had in Vallejo Part 1, The Good Times I Had in Vallejo Part 2, and Snapshots from Vallejo, the Zodcast, the Zodiac Killer. So, in these videos, um, as I said, Drew got to visit the Lake Herman Road uh, parking lot, as well as Blue Rock Springs Park, and the uh, IHOP restaurant where Darlene Farron would have worked at. And um, I was really quite surprised when he was showing some footage of Vallejo, because I've looked at a lot of photos of Vallejo, but most of them were black and white, from the past, I mean, some of them are in color, but they still have that kind of grainy, blurry look, the way that some older photos do. And just looking at Vallejo in the present day, it really was quite different than how I imagined it, because, as Drew pointed out, a lot of it seems to have been frozen in time. It doesn't look like a lot of the, the buildings have been revamped or renovated or altered in a lot of different ways. The first point that um, he shared in one video was that the Lake Herman Road parking lot, where David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen were murdered on December 20th of 1968 by the Zodiac Killer, is extremely small. It's almost just like a dip in the road, or imagine just a section of the road continuing on outward into some gravel. But of course, the Lake Herman Road parking lot is the entrance to the Benicia water pumping station, and they actually had the gate there. Then, and it was open in Drew's video, like, the entrance to the water pumping station was open, but it said, no trespassing. And I read somewhere once that in 1968, when David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen would have gone there, it would have actually been much bigger. At the time, the fence would have been farther back, but I don't even remember where I read that one. But I think that's almost an irrelevant point, because... As far as we know, David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen's car would have been very close to the road, and there's definitely not a lot of room going on there, and I think, though, that that might really question the motivation about why they went to the parking lot, because there are numerous people out there who simply insist that David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen did not go there for physical intimacy. It wasn't actually a lover's lane shooting. Some people think that they went there just simply to have a conversation. And, I mean, maybe that's something that people did before smartphones. I mean, okay, of course, yes, we pull over on the side of the road and they want to talk for a while. And maybe they're sharing a romantic moment, but it's not physical intimacy. 
and some people think that David was going to give Betty Lou his class ring and asked her to be his steady girlfriend, and then other people think that he took off the class ring because he thought that the Zodiac Killer was trying to rob them, so he was just going to offer it to the guy, hey, here, take my ring, just please don't hurt us. Something to that effect. And another point, though, that Drew shared in his videos is that Lake Herman Road and Blue Rock Springs, the second Zodiac crime, are very close together. And what did he say? It was like a six or seven minute drive or something, or but very close by. And the first time I saw that on a map, I was really quite surprised that those two crimes would have been so nearby because the Lake Herman Road murders and the Blue Rock Spring shooting, which saw the death of Darlene Farron, are very similar crimes. Both of them have a man and a woman in a car. Both of them are seated in the car together. And some guy comes up and starts firing a gun at the two victims. And the only difference, really, with Blue Rock Springs is Mike Majot, the male victim, survived the shooting. But I guess um, some of the other differences would be David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen were ordered out of the car. At Lake Herman Road, the male victim was in the driver's seat at first, and then Betty Lou Jensen was in the passenger seat. At Blue Rock Springs Park, Darlene Farron would have been in the driver's seat, and Mike Majot would have been in the passenger seat. And um, also, after Blue Rock Springs, I guess a very important difference is somebody made a phone call saying that you'll find two kids that have been shot with a 9mm Luger. I'm the one who did it. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. And um, if I ever heard that too, I probably would be somewhat disturbed the way that Nancy Slover was. But that's when the Zodiac Killer is truly beginning the foundations of creating his persona. But there is the book out there called um, uh, My Name is the uh, Zodiac, the one that's by a concerned citizen with the bright blue cover. And it's about how Betty Lou Jensen could have been murdered because of a case of mistaken identity. The killer was actually trying to get Darlene Farron, and there's so many back-and-forth um, things going on in that theory. Some people think that the uh, person may have been trying to get Betty Lou all along because it, both of these cases are tied to the drug trade. And I say that because Lake Herman Road is more or less a drug corridor. A drug bust was going on very close by. Secondarily, Blue Rock Springs Park was a place where Darlene Farron and Mike Michaud went to do what? to buy drugs, mostly a little bit of marijuana and some pills. And is there some way, somehow, that there's a type of drug-related or gang-related connection to the Zodiac case? Maybe. I have no idea how I would be able to prove that in a court of law, other than guesswork. But here is something else, though. And this is practically a new segment. I guess I should first say one more time. You can find these videos, The Good Times I Had in Vallejo, Parts 1 and 2, on Drew Beeson's channel. He is the author of Sighting In on the Zodiac Killer, as well as the host of the Zodcast. But to move on to this next segment, which is heavily connected, after Blue Rock Springs, you have the phone call, 
you have somebody writing a letter taking credit for not only the Blue Rock Springs murder, but the Lake Herman Road murders, saying something to the effect of, I am the killer of the girl on the 4th of July and the two kids last Christmas at Lake Herman. I'm paraphrasing, all right, fully aware. So then the Zodiac goes on to create the August 4th letter, gives himself the name, and says, this is the Zodiac speaking. On September 27th of 1969, the Zodiac killer attacks Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard at Lake Berryessa. This is the time when the Zodiac killer was wearing his hooded costume with a symbol on it, and yes, indeed, the crime is committed with the Zodiac symbol. This is the only time the victims were tied up, the only time the victims were stabbed, and then the Zodiac writes a message on Brian Hartnell's car door saying, uh, the Zodiac symbol, Vallejo, the dates of Zodiac activity, and signs it by knife. Now this is going to sound really weird, but please bear with me. I happened to have just turned on the TV, and I encountered the movie Death of a Cheerleader. And it um, is the remake of an older movie. They made this movie called Death of a Cheerleader with Kelly Martin and Tori Spelling. It was always on the TV when I was back in high school. And they made a remake of it. All of the names had been changed. But it's the story of a girl named Angela Del Vecchio who committed a uh, murder. I mean, hence the name Death of a Cheerleader. And Kelly Martin, who was in the first movie, appears in the remake. And she is an FBI profiler. And the scene that I tuned into was she's talking to a girl about stabbings. And this fictional FBI profiler is saying, when someone is stabbed, it is most likely a personal crime where the killer knew the victim very well. What on earth does that say about the Zodiac Killer? Did I not just say that Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard were the only victims who were stabbed and the Zodiac wrote by knife on the car door? Some people have brought this to my attention over the past uh, several months that they think that some way, somehow, either Brian or Cecilia was the primary target. The whole concept of committing a murder and having an additional series of unrelated murders to cover it up. And this has been explored a lot with the victim Darlene Farron. This has been explored with the victim Paul Stein. That's why they think his crime is so different. The taxi driver who was murdered on October 11th of 69. But think about what this sort of Kelly Martin, the FBI profiler, just said. If a victim has been stabbed, that suggests a personal connection. Because the way this was shared to me months ago was that could the killer at Lake Berryessa have been wearing the hooded costume because he knew one or both of the victims? Probably just one of them. I mean, Brian and Cecilia were um, more or less doing something that was very discreet and hidden. Brian actually had another girlfriend, and I guess, I mean, to be very blunt, he was cheating on his girlfriend with Cecilia. And if you read the police report, at the very end of um, one of the interviews, he says, I'll need to talk to my girlfriend now. And um, But does that not suggest that it's possible that the Zodiac killer knew Brian or Cecilia Shepard and 
that even if they're not the only target, maybe someone's just a deranged serial killer and they want to get revenge on the heterosexual world. However, they wanted to make this one personal because, I mean, maybe it's something like the Riverside Confession, all the constant brush-offs that she had given him in the past, or some type of personal history. Do you think that that's possible, or is that just um, completely unrelated? Because what a lot of people do, in fact, I think the majority of Zodiac researchers tend to stick to the theory that the victims were not targeted. It was the locations. The victims were almost irrelevant. Someone wanted to commit murders because revenge on society, but also he just wanted coverage in the newspaper. He just wanted people to read these letters. He just wanted the people to read the ciphers. And, I mean, was it Dr. Derek J. Price the whole time or something like that? And he just wanted to create some type of mathematical masterpiece? I mean, I really don't know how on earth that guy would even be placed in California on the dates of all Zodiac activity. Everything else seems to say that he was in Connecticut. But, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I cert they certainly don't post every footstep the guy took in 1969 online. But um, what, I would just like to ask you guys that as a challenge question of my own. Which one do you agree with? Do you believe that any of the Zodiac killer victims were specifically targeted? Or do you believe that the victims meant nothing to the killer, and that the killer simply just wanted to commit crimes so that he could get coverage in the newspaper, or maybe it's about the locations, maybe it's about getting people to wear some nice Zodiac buttons. Which one do you agree with? Are the victims important to the killer's mind or not? And please feel free to put your idea in the comments section down below.